Hi, this is Robin Kelsey. And this is Robin Bernstein. It's the Robin and Robin Show. So, Robin, you have uh, made a discovery. Could you tell us about it? Sure. Um, the discovery is the narrative of the life of Jane Clark. It was not a completely original discovery. It was known. Um, um, there were some researchers in Auburn, New York, who knew about the text, but it was not available to researchers. It was also not available to the general public. So I read a reference to this slave narrative um, in a secondary work by um, a historian in Auburn, and I wanted to read it. So the reference said that it was um, in the archive of the Cuga Museum. So I went to the Cuga Museum, and the um, curator there very kindly let me read this original text. And when I read it, I thought, this needs to come to public light. And what story does this text tell? It tells a really exciting story of um, an escape, of an escape from slavery. It's the story of a woman who liberated herself and ran um, north to, and eventually made it to Auburn, New York. It's in some ways a very ordinary story. Uh, many people liberated themselves from slavery, but it's also, as each story is, it is a unique story. And it's a story of a long escape. It took her at least two years from the point where she ran until the point where she made it to safety in Auburn. So this is a story that reminds us that an escape from slavery did not often did not take days or weeks or months. It could take years. She was on the run for years. And Jane Clark herself did not write the story of her escape. Can you say a little more about... Uh, how the account came to be written down? Sure. It was written through a white amanuensis. Her name was Julia Ferris, and she was a schoolteacher who lived in Auburn and wrote down the story of Jane Clark. And she wrote it in third person. She did not attempt to ventriloquize Jane Clark. So this story was written down in 1897, and it was read before a historical society, read aloud before a historical society in Auburn. And one of the mysteries, um, originally the mystery, was how these two women knew each other. Um, nobody knew how they knew each other or how Julia Ferris came to write down the story of Jane Clark. Uh, and that's one mystery that I was able to solve. I started looking up everybody pertaining to everybody who appeared in the manuscript. I looked them up in every way I could think of, including um, including the census. And in the 1865 census for New York State, I found a reference to Jane Clark, and she was living in the home of Charles Briggs, where she was working as a servant. And then... In the very next line of the New York State Census, there is another familiar name, and that is Julia Ferris. So Julia Ferris was living as a boarder in Charles Briggs's home at the same time that, um, that Jane Clark was living there and working there. So that's how they knew each other. Uh, Julia Ferris was about 20 years younger than Jane Clark. So the older woman and the younger woman had some sort of relationship, and the relationship was close enough and long-term enough that 40 years later, Julia Ferris wrote Jane Clark's story. And um, after I published this piece, 
um, um, a researcher contacted me, a researcher named Kate Larson contacted me and let me know that she had additional information about Jane Clark. And one of the pieces of information that Kate Larson had that I did not have was that Julia Ferris was actually the executor for Jane Clark's estate. So these two women clearly had a long-term trusting relationship. That's very interesting. Were these narratives of uh, slaves escaping to the North, uh, were they popular? Was there, do you think, a real motivation for, uh, for Julia Ferris to deliver this at the Historical Society because it would have been of considerable interest? Yeah. Um, Slave narratives generated a lot of interest. Um, some of them, were, of course, sold very well. We could think of the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, for example. Um, and then some of them sold less well. This one was never published during um, Jane Clark's lifetime, and so um, Julia Ferris did not have any sort of profit motivation. But she clearly did think that um, the other members of the historical society would be interested. There's one line within the narrative where Jane, where um, excuse me, where Julia Ferris comments that the her listeners are well aware of the conventions of slave narratives. So what that says to me is that she was assuming, she had read other slave narratives, clearly, and she was also assuming that the other members of the historical society had also read slave narratives. So it's clearly she was presenting to them something that she thought would speak to existing interests. What kind of narrator is Julia Ferris? Is she very sympathetic? to the character Jane Clark in this in this narrative? Does she celebrate her, dignify her? What's the tone of the narrative? It's a very mixed tone, and that's one of the things that makes this narrative interesting. I think there's an overall affection, and there's an overall deep knowledge. It's clear that Julia Ferris is writing about somebody that she knows personally and knows pretty well. Um, there are moments that um, involve ridicule, and ridicule in particular about um, uh, Jane Clark's accent and her um, creative pronunciation of words. So we might look at those moments of, of ridicule and, say, and and wonder, what is the tone here? Is it the mockery of somebody, the, the kind of mockery that somebody might do towards somebody that they know very well and care about a great deal? Or is it a more pernicious kind of mockery? that's coming more from the outside in, the kind of mockery that um, we could describe as racism uh, in, a, in a very simple and straightforward way. Uh, and of course, these are not mutually exclusive. So on the one hand, it's a very respectful slave narrative because it focuses on Jane Clark's agency. Um, it focuses on her own actions that that by which she liberated herself. On the other hand, there is this perhaps gentle, perhaps not so gentle ribbing about Jane Clark's lack of education. Why Auburn, New York? Ah, ah, Auburn, New York. Auburn, New York was um, a little-known hotspot on the Underground Railroad. So Jane Clark came up via the Underground Railroad, and the narrative uses that phrase, uses the phrase Underground Railroad, so 
When we think about hot spots on the Underground Railroad, we think about Philadelphia, we think about New York, we think about Rochester, um, we think about spots in Canada. We generally don't immediately think about Auburn, but this is, but in fact, Auburn was um, a site of quite a lot of Underground Railroad activity. There were quite a few abolitionists who lived in um, Auburn, New York, uh, and were known to harbor fugitives from slavery. Harriet Tubman lived in Auburn, New York from 1858 until her death in 1913. So, and, and she also brought many of her siblings and other members of her family to Auburn. In fact, the, the um, um, Harriet Tubman house is still um, something that one can visit in Auburn, New York. So Auburn was a really important site on the Underground Railroad, a really important site for abolitionists, and it's been a little bit forgotten as such. So one effect that I hope the publication of this slave narrative will have is putting Auburn back on the map in terms of the Underground Railroad and abolitionism um, and African-American life. I take it that as a hot spot on the Underground Railroad that that Auburn was both a destination but also a relay point where people might go elsewhere. How many of the freed slaves settled in Auburn itself? Uh, it's hard to have a number like that. I don't think anybody can give you a number. Um, it was certainly it was certainly fewer than a thousand and more than a hundred. That's for sure. Um, and then, of course, when you have quite a few people settling, then, of course, they establish families, they establish businesses, um, and these families and businesses um, become part of the city, and they are still part of the city. What about Jane Clark's own family and fa familial relations? How does that figure into the story? She seems never to have had. She seems never to have had any children. She seems also to have had two husbands. the uh, The narrative is very subtle about the possibility that she had two husbands. She had a husband in Maryland, and then she runs with her brother. Her brother makes it to Auburn first. Her brother had a shorter escape route than she did, um, and then in Auburn she has a husband. So the narrative itself is rather demure. It sidesteps the question of whether these two men were the same person. The, it seems that they probably were not. Um, Kate Larson had some very helpful information on Jane Clark's um, husband, Henry Clark, her husband in Auburn, and it seems that he came from Delaware. He, was, he liberated himself from slavery in Delaware, not Maryland, which suggests that, in fact, there were two different husbands. The uh, detective stories that one must uh, track down in the archives with this kind of work. What are some common misperceptions about the Underground Railroad? Uh, well, a very common misperception about it is that it was well organized and that it was relatively safe and predictable, that people could just, quote, uh, hop on the Underground Railroad and then they could. And people, most people understand that the Underground Railroad was not an actual railroad. But the term Underground Railroad gives a sense of regularity, of schedules, of predictability, and of, um, of, of steady movement, of steadiness. And these are all, these are all uh, misperceptions. In fact, uh, what we call the Underground Railroad today 
could be better understood as people running for their lives and people running in some ways through some paths that had been run before. So, for example, Auburn, New York. Uh, um, Jane Clark seems to have um, connected with William Still in Philadelphia, who was an African-American abolitionist who helped many, many, many people get to freedom. So in that way, she was going through a passage that others had walked before and that others walked after her. On the other hand, there was tremendous chaos and constant terror. So that is something that 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 chaos and terror uh, can very easily be um, forgotten when we think about the term Underground Railroad and, and we have this fantasy that it was regular and predictable and somewhat safe. It was not safe. What you say about steady movement makes me think about the image that I might carry in my head about a flee, fleeing bondage and moving night by night, week by week, until uh, one either succeeds or does not succeed. But this is a journey in which there were long periods of time where where Jane was in the same place, but not yet in a destination where she could uh, re- really settle down freely. That's right. She hid out for, it seems to be that she hid out for a year in a cabin in Maryland. And then she managed to get a forged pass to go see the inauguration of James Buchanan, the president. So she... Um, she she um, played the role of a of a woman who of an enslaved woman who was allowed to go to Washington D.C. She had this forged paper. She got herself to Washington D.C., witnessed the inauguration of James Buchanan, and then she was not able to leave. So she stayed in Washington D.C. for again about a year, and she passed as a free woman of color, and she was able to live in Washington, D.C., but she was not able to travel. It took her another year before she was able to get another set of forged papers that would enable her to travel. Extraordinary. So when you say that she attended the inauguration of Buchanan, is this based entirely on the narrative that we have from Julia Ferris, or is there corroborating evidence for any of the uh, facts in that story? There is corroborating evidence for many of the facts in the story. One of the reasons that I believe that she um, did, in fact, um, that she was in Washington, D.C. for the inauguration of Buchanan is that the dates all line up perfectly. So um, what, one of the things that I did in this, um, in the introduction to this slave narrative is I looked at all of the dates to see if anything contradicted anything. There were a couple of dates where I was not able to nail things down. Um, There's one point in the story where it's not clear whether one month passes or 13 months pass. However, the, um, the certain dates, they just, they all line up perfectly. I don't know that she, with her eyes, saw the inauguration of Buchanan, but what's quite clear from the narrative and from all the corroborating dates is that she was in Washington, D.C. And what's most important is that the inauguration of Buchanan was, became a tool of her escape. 
So that's another reason why I absolutely believe that she um, was in Washington, D.C. when Buchanan was inaugurated. It was not, it's not just her name dropping. It's not just her bragging um, or, you know, telling a good story. It's actually um, a, a plot element. It's part of how she escaped. The resourcefulness is, uh, is extraordinary. One of the things that Ferris mentions in uh, the narrative is that it was a regular practice to allow slaves to visit other plantations during holidays such that the absence of a slave for some period of time would not be particularly noteworthy. Is this, is this true? Oh, it's absolutely true. Um, there, were, there were many times when enslaved people were received very, very small liberties. And these very, very small liberties were not, they did not mitigate the cruelty of slavery. What they did, in fact, was enable slavery to continue. If you have a system that is only controlling and suppressing people, only oppressing them in every way all the time, then people have no reason to live. People have no reason to keep going. Um, However, if small pleasures, small moments of happiness are built into the system, that does not mitigate the cruelty of the system. That actually augments it because it enables the entire system to continue. So yes, it's completely true that many, many enslaved people enjoyed small liberties during holidays, particularly Christmas. Uh, People often were allowed to work less or not at all for a a short period of time. People often got better food than they normally got. Sometimes people got alcohol. Um, But we should not understand these... um, We should not understand these moments as evidence of kindness. We absolutely should not understand these moments as evidence uh, that slavery was somehow less bad. These moments were part of the system, and they were part of the viciousness of slavery. A safety valve in some way, letting off just enough pressure to maintain maintain the system. That's right. Um, it would seem, though, that slave owners would only have allowed these departures during the holidays if they felt fairly secure that most slaves were not going to be um, escaping. Can you give us a sense of the rate of uh, of escape among slaves? Because slaves were very valuable property, correct? Mm-hmm. So it would seem that the uh, risk would be considerable unless you thought that the probability of a particular slave escaping during one of these holiday periods was minimal. Well, I think one of the things that Jane Clark's memoir reminds us is just how hard it was to escape. It was very, very, very hard. And we should... So so, so when... When enslavers took certain risks, so when they, for example, allowed enslaved people to travel to another plantation during a holiday, for example, one of the reasons that they were reasonably confident that people would return was that it was so difficult to run that most enslavers could be reasonably confident that most enslaved people would come back. And indeed, most of them did. We also should think about uh, escape from slavery not as a one-time event. What was much more, Some people, like Jane Clark, managed to liberate themselves. 
One thing that happened with some frequency was people escaping for a little while, people running off into a swamp, for example, and staying in a swamp for a while, days or weeks, maybe even months. But then it's really hard to live in a swamp, and it is really hard to leave and continue um, to, and continue north. So what happened not infrequently was people would escape for a while, and then they would come back um, and face terrible consequences, terrible punishment, and still come back. Robin, I'm struck by uh, your remark that one of the most distressing aspects of the narrative has to do with the rendering of Jane Clark's speech in a kind of dialect, Mm -hmm. which seems to border on a kind of ridicule. Mm -hmm. Do you know if there are examples of this kind of narrative in which the language of the slave is rendered without that kind of dialect? Sure. Well, there's there's dialect and then there's dialect humor. And this narrative contains dialect humor. So it's not simply that Julia Ferris is trying to phonetically, faithfully reflect what Jane Clark's voice sounded like. Uh, We could see that kind of phonetic attempt to uh, represent voice in, um, for example, the narrative of the life of Sojourner Truth, which is another narrative that was written through a white amanuensis. But there, um, the white amanuensis is not joking around. She is, she is simply trying to represent Sojourner Truth's voice. I would contrast that with Julia Ferris's um, comments. Julia Ferris is, finds amusement in some of Jane Clark's uh, statements. So, for example, uh, one of the things that Jane Clark says through the voice of Julia Ferris, she says, um, uh, she says, I can't read anything but the Bible, but I've always read every word in that from Genesee to Revolution. So from Genesee to Revolution. Genesee is the name of the main street in Auburn. So she's changing Genesis to Genesee. And Julia Ferris is finding a certain level of amusement in that. So... It's not just that she is rendering phonetically, uh, rendering dialect phonetically. It's more, it's some of that. It's some of the the desire to channel the voice. But it's also um, uh, a little bit of perhaps snideness, a little bit of superiority, um, a little bit of finding amusement in quote unquote errors. Another thing that we should think about with this narrative is that it was not written for publication. It was written for oral presentation. It was written for Julia Ferris to read aloud to a white audience. So you have a a white woman reading this aloud to a white audience in 1897. So there's no way to escape the echo of blackface minstrelsy. This was a time when blackface minstrelsy was absolutely foregrounded in popular culture. And what you have here is a kind of of corkless blackface, a kind of uh, performance of black vocality that is ridiculing and is... um, is taking on that voice in the absence of actual African Americans. The um, historical society did not include African Americans, so it was a white. Uh, it was a performance of blackness by white uh, by a white woman 
for white people that included ridicule. Robin, how are scholars reading this kind of narrative differently than they might have done a generation ago? Are scholars looking for different things? Are they, are they reading this kind of narrative uh, with an eye that marks our own moment? The idea of the Underground Railroad is inherently uh, controversial. Uh, there are some people who want to tell a story that emphasizes um, the regularity and the predictability of this of, of this phenomenon, and that's that's really wishful thinking. Um, and then I think there was a period where there was a little bit of a backlash against that wishful thinking, and people started to suggest that the Underground Railroad was completely chaotic, that it had no order at all. And I think now we're coming to a new place where we can think about the ways in which it was chaotic and disordered, but also the ways in which there were parts of it that actually were quite well-ordered and were and did have a sense of um, organization. So, for example, the work of William Still. Um, so I think that this, this slave narrative is actually very useful at this moment because what we see is both extremes of experience. We see somebody who went, who, who met uh, some major figures on the Underground Railroad, like William Still, but also uh, went through periods where she was winging it on her own. She was figuring it out moment to moment without any kind of organized help. She had both experiences. I'm struck by the fact that we have an instance here of a uh, white school teacher, a woman who's writing this account of this freed slave, and it's one woman writing about another woman. We've been talking about race, we've been talking about slavery, but you also mentioned the extent to which this narrative gives Jane an agency. It emphasizes the agency of her escape. Do you think about it in terms of, of the gender question as well? I think this narrative is in some ways a really nice document of a long-term relationship between two women, uh, two women of different generations, uh, two women who perhaps would have described themselves as friends, perhaps would not have. We can't know that. But what's absolutely clear is that this is a long-term relationship between two adult women who cared about each other. And beyond, beyond that, we can't know the complexity of their relationship. But we certainly could look at this as an example of women helping each other. It's clear that it was a relationship that had a certain degree of mutuality and a certain degree of certain kinds of mutual respect. Um, so we can look at it as one of the many, many different kinds of relationships that women build with each other across difference, under difficult circumstances, um, relationship that cannot be simplistically categorized. But it is, it, is one relation, it is one example of a 19th century relationship between women. So, Robin, a, a meteor shower plays a role in this, uh, in this narrative. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this is one of the most extraordinary passages in the narrative. And now I have to find it. It should be easy. Here we go. This is one of the most extraordinary passages in the narrative. It was um, 
one of the passages in the narrative that made me think I really need to publish this. I need to bring this to public attention. So I'll just read it. Um, I'll just read the passage uh, that, it, that, that is about the meteor shower. At the age of eight, she was hired out to the owner of a small plantation. Her daily food here consisted of a pint of cornmeal, which was seasoned with salt, mixed with water, and baked in the ashes. Her principal duty was, in the company of two other children, to bring water a long distance from a spring for culinary purposes for all of the plantation. These three children would start out about four o'clock in the morning to make two trips before breakfast, four before dinner, and one before supper. The hair was worn off their heads by the water pails which the children carried on them. It was on one of these early morning excursions that she saw the stars fall. This scene is vivid in her memory. The children were on their way to the spring. They were not old enough to be alarmed by the unusual sight, but ran along trying to catch the stars as they fell. So the meteor shower that's being referred to here is the Leonids, which was a huge meteor shower that um, was visible uh, throughout much of North America in 1833, and it later became known as the the night the stars fell. So that's what she is referring to here. and the night the stars fell, the Leonid meteor shower had tremendous meaning to many different kinds of people because it was so spectacular. It was so extraordinary. But for African Americans, it had particular meaning. And many, many African Americans saw it as either something very frightening. Many, I mean, many people of, of all races were frightened by this um, stellar event. Um, but for some African Americans, it seemed to be um, an augur of great change and perhaps the change of liberation from slavery. So this is a story that um, this is a story of a of, of a celestial event that affected thousands of people across North America. And Jane Clark and her two child companions were part of that. And I love the idea of them seeing this extraordinarily beautiful event, not being frightened by it, and, and, and trying to catch the stars as they fell, but then having to return to work at four in the morning. Robin, is this part of a larger project for you? Um, this is something that I came across while I was writing a book, while I, I am writing a book. Um, I'm writing a book about um, another family that was um, affected by slavery in Auburn, New York. I'm writing about the family of, of William Freeman. Uh, William Freeman was a freeborn African American who lived in Auburn, New York. And when he was 16 years old, he was accused of a crime that he probably did not commit. And he was sentenced to five years hard labor in the Auburn State Prison, which was the prison that originated uh, the idea of prison for profit in the United States. Uh, Most people think that prison for profit originated in the South after after the Civil War. But in fact, it originated in the North, in Auburn, New York. So he, William Freeman was sentenced to five years hard labor in the factories, which were inside the Auburn State Prison. And while he was in that prison, he refused to work. He was the freeborn son of a manumitted slave. He was incensed that he was being forced to work, as he put it, for nothing, meaning for no pay, but also for no crime. And one day when he refused to work, 
In retaliation, a jailer beat him on the head with a board that was two feet long, 14 inches wide, and half an inch thick. And the jailer beat him so hard that the board broke over William Freeman's head. And William sustained what we would now call a traumatic brain injury. And he was also deafened. And when he got out of prison in 1845, he spent about six months trying to reconnect with the African-American community in Auburn, New York. But he was brain damaged, and he was deafened, and he was alienated from the community. And after six months, he walked into the home of a white family who does not seem to have done any harm to him at any point, and he started killing everybody. He killed four people in five minutes. So this is the story that I'm writing in my book, and I'm showing how this extraordinary event opens up a century of history of slavery and emancipation in the North. It tells us a story that we don't know about slavery and emancipation. And it also shows us how that history of slavery and emancipation entangled with the rise of prison for profit. So this is the story of the book that I'm writing about William Freeman. Now, William Freeman never met Jane Clark. Uh, William Freeman died before Jane Clark ever came to Auburn, New York. But this is why I was in Auburn and why I was doing research in archives and why I was learning about the African-American community and the history of Auburn, New York. So it's like many things. You find something when you're looking for something else. I was looking for the history of William Freeman, and I certainly found that history in abundance. But along the way, I found the history of Jane Clark. Will your discovery of this uh, history of, of Jane Clark lead in any new directions as a scholar, or do you think this is a discrete project for you? Well, I, I would emphasize that I actually did not discover the history of Jane Clark. It was known. Um, I, the only reason I went looking for the manuscript was because other people, including Judith Wellman, had previously been aware of it and had written that it existed. If I had, I read um, a piece by Judith Wellman about the history of um, slavery and emancipation in um, central New York State. And so if Judith Wellman had not noted the existence of Jane Clark's um, uh, narrative, I wouldn't have known to go looking for it. So I don't want to claim that I discovered it. What I will take credit for is the fact that I brought it um, to the internet in such a way that people can read it and find it. When, um, I, I wanted to publish it in Commonplace because I knew that it would have no firewall. It would be permanently, completely available to anybody with access to the internet. I wanted this narrative to be available to college professors and high school teachers. I wanted it to be available to high school students. I wanted it to be available to anybody who cares about African-American history, anybody who wants to understand better the diversity of experiences in self-liberation. So that was really the project, was to get this into the public eye, to make it permanently available to the entire world. Robin, how have the internet and the digital technologies we now have changed the way in which we can put together and uh, disseminate histories of the Underground Railroad and related subjects? Sure. Um, 
Well, the internet has made masses of, um, of, of text and data available to anybody with an internet hookup. So this is, this is astonishing. So for example, in, um, I'm going to check and make sure this is right. Um, Okay. Um, the University of North Carolina has digitized hundreds of slave narratives. So these are all completely accessible. They are out of copyright, so they are fully digitized, and they are online. So this is astonishing, not only that um, anybody who has access to the Internet can go read thousands and thousands of pages of slave narrative for free. So that's that alone is astonishing. But what's also astonishing is that the North, University of North Carolina website has made those slave narratives, narratives searchable. So what one can do is one can simultaneously search many, many, many slave narratives. So if you want to know what slave narratives have to say about, let's say, Christmas, you can search Christmas. And you can get a whole lot of data very, very fast. This is astonishing. Um, meanwhile, there are many other um, projects underway that are taking materials that were previously deep in archives and making them available to anybody with access to the internet. There's a wonderful project called the called Colored Conventions. It's coloredconventions.org, and what this um, website does is it digitizes documents that were originated that originated with colored conventions, which is to say conferences that abolitionist conferences by black people for black people in the North. So these conferences, these colored conventions, create uh, generated huge amounts of text. And that text was available previously only to people who could actually go to an archive. But this website is digitizing it and putting it online and making it searchable. So that's just one example of the kind of material that is now available worldwide. It's, it's an astonishing moment for research. That's extraordinary. Robin, you've reported that uh, since you posted this narrative of Jane Clark online uh, that you discovered from someone who uh, found your account that uh, Julia Ferris was the executor of Jane Clark's estate. Mm -hmm. That seems to me a marvelous example of the kind of exchange of information that can only take place because the internet is the intermediary. Yeah, it was wonderful. That was uh, Kate Larson who emailed me after I published this piece in Commonplace. And she emailed me and said, I have information about Jane Clark, which was fabulous. She is a researcher. She's doing her own work on Harriet Tubman. So she also had come across Jane Clark and had collected some information about her. Um, and Kate Larson was able to fill in some details that I had not been able to find. So she knew the, that um, the date of Jane Clark's death. She knew that Jane Clark died in 1899, which I had not been able to determine. She also knew, found out that um, Henry Clark, Jane's, Jane Clark's husband, died in 1900. That was another fact that I was not able to unearth. So it's quite wonderful when you put something out there into the world and somebody else has another piece of the jigsaw puzzle and can put it together. Click, there it goes. From the Underground Railroad to the Information Superhighway. <laughs>